Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us science at newstalk.com or you can tweet us. We're at News Talk Science. We get to all of your comments at the end of the podcast. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news as always. And we're joined by Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Jessamine Fairfield from the University of Galway. Um, our first story, Jessamine, has to do with AI and breast cancer screening. That's right. This is a really exciting story coming out of Lund University in Sweden, where basically they've done the first ever randomized controlled trial looking at how AI can help with breast cancer uh, screening programs. And basically what they found is that both the detection is really good compared to traditional methods where just a radiologist doing it, but also the workload for those radiologists is substantially lowered. So to me, this is really exciting because it could substantially lower the time that's needed and like the waiting time for a lot of these services. Um, The details of the study, basically, they looked at over 80,000 women in Sweden who were due for standard breast cancer screenings. Um, They compared what they normally do, which is have two radiologists separately look at the results of the screening, different programs. And they also had an AI program that could do some initial look at the images, but then still having an actual human radiologist check, Mm. um, in some cases one, in some cases two. And they were trying to figure out, are more cancers detected by the AI or or fewer, which would be bad? Um, And also is the false positive rate any difference? Because that would also not be great. Um, And what they found is actually the false positive rate was exactly the same for the two methods. So the AI wasn't any better or worse, but the AI-assisted radiologists did find more cancers. They found uh, cancers in 28% of patients compared to 25%. And what that meant was because they had lowered the workload on radiologists, there was about 44% less time needed from radiologists to get the same amount of screenings done. So the one thing that uh, that kind of this study hasn't shown yet, and the reason why it's being reported as an interim result, is that um, the next question would be like, does this actually affect patient outcomes or not? Like, are we detecting cancers that are having an impact on these patients, or are we potentially over detecting things that might be harmless? There's a lot of you know benign like breast things that can be detected by things like mammograms or MRIs. Um, but they don't actually need treatment. So if we were over-detecting those, that wouldn't be great. That's the next stage of this study. Um, but to me, it's really exciting because, you know, breast cancer screenings, like a lot of medical screenings, they're more effective the earlier that they're done and the earlier that you catch something. And one of the issues that they have, you know, in Sweden, but also here in Ireland, is the wait times. You know, if you're trying to get into breast check for a screening, um, if you have any symptoms that your GP flags is urgent, then you can get in quite quickly within a couple of weeks. But the wait time can be up to three months if it's not flagged as urgent. And then once you get those results, the referral to a treatment can be up to a year if it's not flagged as urgent. And, you know, obviously the urgent, not urgent classification system helps some. But like really, ideally, people would be getting seen early on, regardless of how like severe their symptoms are, or at least as early as is warranted. So to me, if we can reduce workload on our radiologists, I mean, that'd be great. Look, I mean, I feel like everything comes down to the really slow implementation of technology. I mean, forget about AI. We are so far behind um, a, a technical um, backbone to a working um, health system here in Ireland. But, you know, globally, I have an impatience with the introduction of AI in these things. When we look at, you know, ocular recognition, ocular character recognition, when it comes to, for example, x-rays and so on, we, we, we know that AI can slash um, the 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 inaccuracies if it is tested and implemented quickly enough. because because that's what AI is brilliant at doing and it seems to me that there are 
thousands of of approaches um, and 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 various um, pathologies that this could be applied to, and yet we're still going. Oh, this might happen. I think we need to be introducing them much more quickly as an assistant or whatever. But we need to get get to get there and into clinics so much quicker than than what I'm hearing. We're still at the very much kind of figuring stuff out stage. AI can do this. We need to get it to help people and hospitals with their burden. Yeah, absolutely. And things like pattern recognition, AI mm. is so good at that. And it you know, doesn't mean removing the human element from it, but just reducing that workload, it could have a huge difference. And we have that technology now. It's just if the, the, the gap between that and getting it to hospitals is, 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 to me, unbearably long let alone the fact that we haven't got a unique health identifier in this country. Shane, our second story has to do with uh, Voyager and a bit of controversy this week. Someone did a a whoopsie. Bit of a whoopsie and tech at the other end of the scale from AI. We're talking about a machine that was launched in 1977 that has four kilobytes of storage on it. A a random photograph is two megabytes, so 500 times more data is in the picture of your cat uh, than is on a spacecraft that is now 19 billion kilometres away from Earth the furthest object we have from the Earth. It's in interstellar space. And uh, somebody um, sent a faulty command to it. Um, That command took 18 hours to go from Earth to Voyager. Remarkably, uh, Voyager can detect it and at least at this time could do something with it. And the faulty command uh, got it to move its little antennae um, a little bit too much. So it wasn't pointed back at Earth. Uh, in the way it should have been. And so they lost touch with it. Everyone in NASA who works on it has to have uh, familiarity with 1970s technology. So <laughs> Someone who knows what a floppy disk is. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Five-inch one as well. Um, and so, yeah, they they lost touch with it. And then they had to get all of the um, this deep space networks to go look for it, right? And so they scanned the sky. They got radio science groups from around the world and the deep space network to look. And they found it's an it. awkward email to have yeah. to write. <laughs> Dear friends, um. <laughs> we have lost an interstellar probe. And um, they did find it. They say they found a little heartbeat, right? Which means that they can detect it. But unfortunately, it's not yet doing anything with the commands that they're sending it. And this week, they are using a dish in Australia called the Canberra dish. At least I assume it's, it's in Australia, given its name. They're going to send another signal to it. And it's a long shot. Uh, whether it'll work or not. And they really hope it will, because if it doesn't work, they'll have to wait till October uh, for the spacecraft to reset. It must do some sort of rebooting. Um, Every year. Yeah, exactly. That's Update. a clever idea. God, they were very clever back in the Yeah, they really were. It's had a series of uh, glitches, though. Um, radio receivers not working. At one point, a camera getting stuck. But it has kept going, which is remarkable. It has long outlived uh, the the point at which, like, it's, it's gone long past its sell-by date, and it's still going. Mm. And it and Voyager One are remarkable, and they're as much the subject of art in this day and age as they are of science. And I think they're great. They're my favorite probes. Yeah, the yeah. reason they're still working is because my children haven't gone anywhere near them, uh, <laughs> which, which would instant destruction. Um, uh, our, our third story, Jessamine, uh, has to do with brains in space exactly how I would have said it. And like disembodied brains in space, which is even better. Uh, so what the, the seeds of these brains in space are just disembarked on the International Space Station. And they're part of a research project that's going to use stem cells 
in order to create what are called microbrains. Um, so they're very small brains. So basically, it's not it's not a fully developed human brain that's being made, but it has elements of a human brain, um, neurons, cells called microglia, and astrocytes that do other functions in the brain. And basically, they use it to grow this little miniature brain, um, which you can do on Earth as well as in space. Uh, but the thing is, on Earth, sometimes gravity messes with how these brains assemble themselves. And they, they have some of the function of a, a real brain, but they don't have all of it. And they're, again, quite small, like maybe the size of a pea is many of the ones that have been uh, developed. But they can be used to test things like gene therapy, drug discovery, um, different neurodegenerative diseases without needing either slices of a real human's brain or things like animal models, like brains from mice or pigs or rats or whatever. So Ethically sound. Yeah, exactly. Ethically, like way better than those other things and allowing us to potentially do much better science. So uh, this company, Axonis Therapeutics, is sending these these mini brains into space. Um, Did you say there's an Irish link to this? There is an Irish link to this. Who's the Irish person is always the question with a news story. Um, but Axonis Therapeutics was actually co-founded by two UCC grads, Shane Hegarty and Joanna Stanica. Um, so I, I thought the names looked familiar when I was reading the press release. And I'm like, wait a minute. Mm. I know a Shane Hegarty. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, like what the what they do is they're providing these stem cells, which will then, once they're in space, be given chemical cues to turn into these little mini brains. And firstly, they'll just be looking at how well do they grow without gravity. In theory, they should be more spherical. It should be easier for them to create a little brain-like structure. But again, you know, we, we don't exactly know what's going to happen. So something something weird could go on. Um, we could end up with these little miniature Irish brains in space taking over the International Space Station, but probably not. Um, <laughs> and then they'll do an initial gene therapy test um, with a, a technique that they're using that is supposed to target just neurons and not the other cells. So they'll see if that works. And then it could be a really interesting way of looking at, you know, brain structure, but crucially in space. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Our final story, Shane, has to do with camouflage. In space. No, it's got <laughs> to do with camouflage in Australia. And this is work that was done by a master's student called Gemma King in the University of Western Australia. And uh, she and her supervisor looked at a new way or they discovered a way uh, that animals uh, camouflage themselves. So it's not the use of pattern or colour that we might normally think of. Instead, they investigated disrupted body surfaces, right? So that you could effectively fool the predator into thinking your body uh, wasn't continuous, that it was spread out in space. And so the contrasting patterns gave the impression that the body was split up and it fooled them to think this isn't your dinner. And so what they did, this is the fun bit, they tested 3D targets. They made moths, right? Fake ones of with various types of disrupted surfaces. And they brought in the birds and they found that splitting up the surfaces aided the fake moth survival, as in the birds were not interested in the moths whose uh, surfaces were disrupted in terms of different types of materials and this sense of depth perception in it. And they're saying this is a whole new way of camouflage in the animal kingdom that they didn't know about. This reminds me of Razzle Dazzle. <laughs> what um, is Razzle Dazzle? Razzle Dazzle is a type of... Um, a camouflage that the um, U.S. Navy uh, have uh, put in to uh, confuse ships looking at things like submarines and uh, uh, warships on the water. And basically, it's a series of um, weird uh, uh, odd angles, um, geometric shapes and patterns that when you look at a ship, you can't quite figure out if it's coming close to you or going away from you. I think and they use this in like... 
about a hundred years ago on ships too, right? That's right. Yeah, sure. they, they, yeah. it's it's not a new technology, but it it, it works really really well because you, you look at the ship and you because you you're not, you're unfamiliar with the shapes and you don't know what the shape of the ship is. It gives you that little bit of extra time. So maybe birds won't to attack that ship either. Birds won't attack this ship. Yeah. But I, I and like the, the science of camouflage is absolutely fascinating. The idea that digital camouflage, which is you know using um, non analog shapes, but sort of like a digital uh, sort of um, you know, that those straight lines that we see yes. not in nature, that that can be more effective than natural camouflage mm. in in natural environments. It's fascinating. And it's all to do with how the brain takes in signals and uh, how the eye feeds information, how it sticks it all together. But I love that. I think that's very cool because camouflage in animals is... It's always fascinating to me. We need to do another piece on camouflage, Marais. Um, uh, Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Jasmine Felfield from the University of Galway. Thanks very much. Welcome back to Future Proof on Newstalk. This is our weekly science programme. My name is Jonathan McRae. And if you'd like to email us, science at newstalk.com or you can text us for 30 cent 53106. Now, theoretical mathematics has given us most of what we know about black holes. The observations of strange movements in the night sky finally yielded interesting results in the 60s and 70s. And so we, we knew they were there, but really that's all we have. The idea of experimental research is ludicrous, of course, because it's impossible to test things out on black holes in real life. You can't exactly throw a planet at a black hole and see what happens. But what if we could make a model of a black hole right here on Earth? Well, Professor Weinfurtner is Director of Knowledge Exchange and Research Development at the Faculty of Science at the University of Nottingham. And she's done just that. She joins me now. Um, Welcome to the programme, Silke. You're you're very welcome. I'd love to, um, first off, talk about uh, your research with the idea of trying to replicate a black hole. Why do we need to do that? Hello. So the reason or the appeal to to set up a black hole in the lab is to test what happened to a black hole if you take quantum physics into account. So while we do have some very strong observational evidence for black holes, what we are lacking entirely is to see what happens to quantum physics about black holes. And the, the this is interesting because if you add quantum physics, really bizarre things happen around a black hole, for example. Right. And these are very difficult to observe, of course. They are very difficult to observe, but never, nevertheless, they're really important. So the most famous example for that is what we call um, a process uh, named Hawking radiation. So Stephen Hawking, when he started looking into what happens uh, when you add particles or quantum physics to uh, to black holes, or you study what happens to these quantum fields, as we call them, around a black hole, he realized that uh, a process would occur that starts from what we call the quantum vacuum. So the quantum vacuum is always there, and it's something predicted from quantum physics. And if you look at the quantum vacuum around a black hole, the black hole interacts with it. It's part of uh, its environment, and what it does it takes parts of that quantum vacuum and it converts it to a radiation, a thermal radiation that we call the Hawking radiation. And by doing this, it actually evaporates away its mass. So classically, we think that black holes can only uh, get bigger and bigger. They swallow everything up. Nothing, not even light can escape. But if you add quantum physics, then a black hole is allowed to lose its mass through this mysterious process that we call Hawking radiation. 
And have we seen Hawking radiation in action? That is unfortunately impossible. It's just far too small. So um, the problem is that black holes are far away. These quantum effects are really small. And in particular, the Hawking effect um, is very hard to observationally verify. And that is because the smaller the black hole, the bigger that radiation is. Now, the problem is these black holes only form in the first place when really massive stars collapse. Mm. So much more massive than our sun, you need something really, really heavy, at least three times as heavy as the sun. And then there has a chance that it can collapse into a black hole. So in short, we don't believe that there are sources, astrophysical sources there, that would have uh, significant enough Hawking radiation uh, for us to be observable. Right. So so this all stems from mathematical modeling. And uh, that's great. But if you want to test out some of these ideas, you have to sort of do that with some sort of an analog model. And that's what you've built in at the University of Nottingham. Can you tell me a little bit about how you go about building a black hole? So the mathematics, the equations we consider around black holes to, to see what happens to particles and fields around it and excitations seems to magically reoccur in this fluid system. And that was sort of the birth of analog gravity or gravity simulators. Right. So this is um, what, what you've built, an, an analog gravity simulator. What exactly is it made of and what sort of experiments can you do on it? Okay, so there is no one answer. So it turns out that nature didn't only give us one gift, it gifted us with many systems where this behavior is true. So what you're generally looking at is some sort of ordinary, but can also be some fancy systems, and that's uh, what, what I would like to allude to. But in general, you think of fluids. Fluids are the easiest ways to understand. It could be that you look at sound waves and fluids, or if you have um, interface wave or gravity waves, which you get the ripples on a pond, and you look at those equations, again, the same, you can find um, this, as we call, mathematical analogy. But they also occur in optical systems. And so as that goes on. You don't only rely on fluids like water or air flows or interface waves on fluids. It turns out also in optical systems, but also in quantum fluids. And quantum fluids are really cool because there the excitations are quantum excitations. It means that the, the physics of these excitations in quantum fluids is different. It means that, for example, if I take... Um, I can take a, a quantum fluid, a fluid, a quantum fluid is a special fluid when I cool it down to closer and closer to zero Kelvin, so minus 273 uh, degrees Celsius, what it happens, it doesn't freeze. It remains a liquid or a fluid, depending on which kind of superfluid I'm working with. And so what happens is then that this remains a fluid, but then I can also look at the excitations within. And these excitations, for example, even if I cool it down to zero Kelvin, I still have small excitations in there, and we call them the quantum excitation or the quantum vacuum. You're talking about so mo movement of, of atomic particles. Small sound waves. Think of sound waves, but the smallest sound waves. Right. So in quantum physics, when in classical physics, if you cool something down at zero temperature, everything would start moving. At some finer temperature, we have Brownian motions, and things are moving due to the temperature. Yeah. In classical physics, if you remove all the temperature, then you wouldn't have any motion at all, mm. any noise. But in quantum physics, that is not true. In quantum physics, the 
um, there is always some noise there. There's some intrinsic noise that's temperature independent that's always there, and we call this the quantum noise. Huh. And out of this quantum noise, I can uh, excite all the, ex you know, I can spontaneously then excite fluctuations. So in quantum physics, you should always think of it that it's never still. It's always moving. Right. So talk, talk yeah. to me about what the, what the actual experiment looks like. What, what is this... Um, is it a large CERN-like thing? Is it a uh, a small device? H how do you set up a physical thing to to mimic something so astronomically huge? So what we want to mimic really is how black holes um, interact with their environment. Mm. So we want to see how black hole interact black holes interact with with excitations surrounding them, and these excitations can be classical or quantum. Okay. And so they have different features. And depending on what kind of um, interaction you're interested in, that makes you choose a specific simulator. So, for example, if you want to see the quantum Hawking uh, evaporation, that process predicted by Stephen Hawking that allows a black hole to evaporate its mass, then you would take a tiny system on microscales, and you would use a special superfluid called an ultra-cold atoms gas, or a Bose-Einstein condensate, and that's a really cool superfluid. Right. And what you would do is you would set up like a cigar-shaped Bose-Einstein condensate, right? And that would be on the micrometer scale. And then you would look use some some laser beams to create regions where the sound waves in the system is slower than the fluid flow. So you would create an ultra-cold atom system or superfluid that would be moving in, the, in, in your setup or has a relative motion. Right. And you would then create these analog horizons and you would look at the, how it affects the quantum radiation around it. And so th this, this sort of analog black hole for you is, is barely visible to the human eye. So this is if you make a very small one. So this is a colleague of mine, Jeff Steinhauer in Israel. He set up this um, tiniest black holes uh, to look for Hawking radiation. Right. What we did a few years before, we realized, well, you know, Hawking radiation um, can also be stimulated. If you give it some excitation to begin with, you can see the same physics but on a much larger scale. And you don't need to worry about quantum physics. You can actually work with classical fluids. And what we used is our tap water. And we set up a big fluid flow, which was several meters long. And we set up an, an, an open channel flow, like you see in rivers. And we just set up a fluid flow. We pumped water through this channel or canal. And then we reduced the height in the fluid. And that had an effectively created effective black and white hole horizon. So it created interesting um, gravity, gravitational features. And then instead of relying on the fluctuations that are present, we stimulated the system in a, in a way appropriate to see this effect. So once you, once you are in charge of it, and you depending on what exactly you are after and what you would like to see, you can start building and designing your, your gravity simulator. And yeah, so that can be a massive tank of water can be the tiniest ultra-cold atom system. You, you sort of described a jacuzzi there. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it, is it far off a jacuzzi? So what we did in Nottingham, um, since I, uh, I moved to Nottingham 10 years ago, and what we have focused on, specialized in, we are setting up a gigantic pool of water. This is how we started. 
And what we had is a, a kind of a weird bathtub. So we had a big water basin. It's sort of three meters long and one meter 50 wide. And then um, the basin itself is about um, half a meter high. And what we did is we had some inlet arms that would allow us to feed the water in. And in the center of the tank, there's a drain hole. And what we would put in, we would create a gigantic vortex flow. And so this then, there's the mapping between this rotating vortex and rotating black hole physics. And so a set which is gigantic and has uh, more than a ton of water in there, um, we would then develop uh, detection methods that allowed us to see how this vortex flow would interact with the interface waves around it. You, you basically simulated the, the black hole by creating a, a vortex of this water? Yes. Like like pulling, the, like the, a, the if vortex, you pulled out yes. the plug, for example, in a bath and it's swirled round and round. Suppose you would temper with your bathtub and you would close the sinkhole on the corner, on the edge, and you would move the sinkhole in the center of your bathtub. Yeah. And then what you can do is you fill the bathtub up, right? And then you could pull the plug and you would start seeing, you could also swirl a little bit and you would see that you form a vortex flow, mm. right? You have this, this gigantic vortex sitting over there. As you know, the vortex you see in the kitchen sink, for example. Yeah. But what we are doing is we would uh, make sure that the water level would stay the same. So we would make sure as much as we drain, we would give back into, into the, the fluid, yeah. into the bathtub, into the, into the system, right? So the water level would stay the same and we would set up the water height just right that we get a nice big vortex forming in the center. And then what we would do is we would send waves in there. And we would really send like just coherent wave fronts. We create a big wave machine and we would send waves towards the center, to this, um, the vortex in the center. And the first thing we wanted to see is an effect called Penrose effect uh, after Roger Penrose or super radiance. And then what that tells us, if a rotating black hole interacts with the excitations around it, it can actually pass on some of its rotation to the excitations around. So the black hole, you send in some energy in form of waves. And the black hole interacts with this wave in such a way that they come out with more energy. Right. That's cool. And so, and that's really cool. That's this famous process also, as I said already, named after Roger Penrose, where he had this crazy, wonderfully crazy idea. What if there would be some really advanced civilization where they had um, sort of a, a, a rotating black hole in its center and they somehow could dump their rubbish into the black hole in a particular way with in a sort of put the rubbish on a lorry send a lorry into the rotating black hole and uh, throw the rubbish in a certain way knowing this Penrose effect uh, and then the lorry would come out again but with more energy and this energy would then be converted to electricity and it could feed this advanced civilization by getting rid of its rubbish. <laughs> okay, and so, so that, that but, is this uh, wonderful proposal by, by Roger Penrose. Which, which, is, which is fantastic. So it's sort of um, uh, perpetual energy in a way. But um, in, in, yeah. this, in this idea... It would also solve our sustainability problem with the rubbish. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. An endless supply of, of power from super radiance from a black hole. The problem is we haven't got a black hole. Um, and and right. my question is, this, this swirling water, I mean, how closely does it resemble a black? Because obviously black holes have 
different um, properties that we can't mimic uh, in a bathtub. How 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 good are these models in predicting real life phenomena uh, galaxies away? Okay, so one has to be very honest here. Of course, um, is an analog not in a sense this is like exactly the same as a black hole? It has all of the features. But the question is, when when we look at black holes and we want to understand how they interact with the environment, which is usually also on a piece of paper is an idealization. We say, okay, we have a nice black hole, there's nothing else but, for example, quantum noise or um, certain excitations surrounding it. And we always sort of, we want to understand what the process really is about. How, how robust are they? So what if the system or the equations, let's say, are similar, but not exactly the same, but they have all of the right ingredients. Mm. And so what we see in the analogs that, yes, they have differences, but what we also see that all of these effects occur. And so in a sense, sometimes the difference tells you more than the similarities, because the similarities is what we can calculate. The difference sometimes, differences are very hard to, <laughs> to fully take into account. And so what we see here is an extreme robustness. So what? all of the effects that we are interesting in, we can find a gravity simulator to see them. And that's really wonderful. Yeah, it's a very cool experiment. And it's great to hear you so enthusiastic about it. Um, so the this idea of super radiance that we had only sort of seen in mathematical models, of course, was something that you were able to demonstrate with this uh, water um, black hole, the analog black hole that we talked about. Your new experiment is using these quantum fluids and uh, a, a type of helium. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, this is a, a very special fluid. It's called a superfluid. And in this superfluid helium uh, um, system that we're using, uh, you can cool it down to almost zero Kelvin and it remains a liquid. And what we want to do there is setting up gigantic vortices. And in particular, what we recently achieved is setting up the biggest uh, vortex flow in superfluid helium. And so why this is so difficult to do, when you rotate a superfluid, um, rotation looks very different. You can't just rotate it in any way, because in superfluids, rotation is quantized. It forms small vortex lines. And each one of these vortex lines carries a little bit of angular momentum. And if you usually want to have more angular momentum, you have to create more of these vortex lines. In principle, what you could do, you could also create a single vortex line, which has uh, increasing in a stepwise manner its angular momentum. Just to be clear, you, when you're saying you can't, if I was to take this superfluid um, helium and just stirred it like a vortex, that wouldn't create a vortex in the same way as water? No, it would not create the same vortex as in water because in a superfluid, rotation is quantized, which means instead of what you get, instead of having one swirl, you would have like quantized, you would have vortex lines. What does that and mean? And so throughout your super, well, it means that quantization, uh, rotation has to have this special feature. It has to be what we call irrotational. And each one of these vortex lines is irrotational. And if you want to set up large, a large rotation, you usually end up having a cluster of these vortex lines. Hmm. So it would be completely different than it is in classical fluids. Wow. 
And this is an amazing achievement that you've managed to create this vortex despite all of these challenges. It'll be very interesting to see what research comes from this new analog black hole and we'll be uh, on to you again, I'm sure, to hear about what you found. But Professor Silke Weinferdner um, from the University of Nottingham, thank you very much for your time. Comments from last week, we were uh, talking uh, about sleep and how to get good sleep, what good sleep means. And we were speaking to someone who monitored their sleep for a year. Someone says, I wore a health tracker watch for a while, but seeing it monitor my heart race and disrupted sleep pattern actually just gave me more anxiety. I don't wear it anymore. <laughs> if uh, it's, it's like getting, you know, a watch telling you you're about to have a heart attack, you know. Is, is that a good idea? Uh, and this says, my husband and I use a sunrise alarm clock and it's the best thing we ever bought. It wakes us up gradually and naturally and our sleep seems to have gotten much better. Well, that's great. Well, we have a natural version of the sunrise alarm clock and that is the sunrise because our window faces east and as you know, the sun rises in the east very early these days. And it is kind of like that scene in Danny Boyle's Sunshine, if you've ever seen it, where they open up the shutters uh, to, uh, they're in the spacecraft and they open up the shutters to expose the entire room to the full blast of the sun, which they're like five meters away or something. And then everyone gets incinerated in it. That's what it feels like every morning as we wake up. And my wife is invested in all sorts of contraptions, including some very expensive eye masks. Nothing will stop the light getting in. So your suggestions. Uh, are greatly appreciated. Someone says, why does everyone get so obsessed with going on their phone or watching a film before they go to bed? Surely it's self-evident that this exposure to screen light will just wake you up before you go to sleep. Yeah, but sleep is boring. And like you get one life, you get literally one life. And if you, you know, I know people say, oh, well, you go to sleep and you wake up rested. Like that's a third of my living hours wasted on having my eyes closed. I I, I you know, really love film. My media career started out as a film critic actually and I loved film and so at night I, I might start a movie at like 12 o'clock and then um, annoy my wife even further by, <laughs> by reacting to it while she's trying to sleep um, but yes it is it, look we all know it's bad but then like there's a million things we do that we, we know are bad for us I just had a donut for God's sake Another says, is there any new tech that will stop or reduce your partner's snoring rolling them over is a good idea if you can get away with that if they're snoring, they could have sleep apnea, which if you are if you are nefarious enough, you could convince them that they are suffering from sleep apnea. And then you can get them to have one of those elephant machines that reduce your sleep apnea. But you literally have to wear a mask that looks like an elephant's face all night, every night. Um, so it depends on how willing you're going to take this, how far you want to take this. And this is, I can't wear watch, I can't wear tracker watches, etc. in bed. I find them uncomfortable. Is there non-wearable tech that I could incorporate? There is. There are sensor pillows you can put your head on and it will sense. And I think there's something, you can also put your phone on your mattress and it will sense how much movement on your mattress you're doing. And that if you're doing a lot of movement, that means you've got light sleep. So there's t- those two different technologies, but I think there are even sensor pillows that will tell you how much movement you've made. So you don't need to wear a tracker in bed. And Joe in Limerick says, uh, on a totally different subject, any discussion on the UFO hearings from US Congress, surely a topic for your show. Well, so Joe, um, the problem with this is, right, it's very difficult to do the science of aliens, <laughs> as much as we've tried in this program, because there really, there really is no science to it, right? We've got military pilots who are, you know, reporting in Congress that they found biological material that is highly classified. We don't know what the biological material is. And it's just one guy saying, I saw something. Or there was a whiz overhead that went backwards really quickly and we can't have the technology to do that. All this sort of stuff is 
Um, it could be true, it could not be true, but there's no science to it because it's an anomaly and there's nothing proposed apart from aliens. So the, the, the show in it would be, is it aliens? Probably not. And that's the whole piece. <laughs> it, we, need, we need a good... How do I know? Well, maybe I don't know, but that's the thing is we could never prove it until we've actually proven it. But the, the only scientific thing we can do with aliens, I suppose, is what, what Frank Drake did, which is look at the probable probability of there being life uh, outside of this planet. And as crazy as aliens sounds as an idea, mathematically, they're extremely likely to exist. The idea, and Brian Cox talks about this in, in, um, in his shows, the idea that we are the only planet in a universe of billions and billions and billions of stars which each have their own planets, the idea that we are the only planet that had the perfect conditions for life seems absolutely ludicrous to me and also seems scientifically and mathematically extremely improbable. Like, out of this world, like one in a zillion, I'm not quite sure what the quite number was, but one in a very big number, improbable. So that's the only real science we can do unless we come across something. But um, the, the, the hearings in Congress are interesting, but from a scientific point of view, they're sort of empty. Uh, so that's my response to you, you Joe. L- love to hear if you've got an angle or if you have something for us to investigate. Why not? We'll do a spin-off program. Uh, send us send us in an email. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Marie Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, John Byrne and Uga da Silva, who was on sound. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.